This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Monday, January the 15th, 2024. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown. Coming to you on AMI-tv, I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, extreme cold weather. It impacted a huge swath of the country, and there's still a few folks shivering this morning from the storm. The city of Calgary is converting downtown offices into apartments. Cheryl McMullen explores some of the incentives and guidelines of the program. And CES unveiled a whole bunch of new technology, including robot butlers and flying cars. Sean Priest will give you the scoop on some of the tech that jumped out at him. Shivering and shaking is the top story of the day. There were places in the prairies hitting minus 50 degrees with the wind chill over the weekend. It still feels like around minus 40 in Regina right now. Uh, There's been some weird storms brewing all weekend too. Montreal and Ottawa got blasted with some snow. Vancouverites are still getting snow this morning after winter blasted them over the course of the last few days. Michelle McQuig and I will dive into some of the news elements in a few minutes, but I want to ask a very human question to Alex Smythe and Laura Bain this morning. Laura, how many days in a row do you think you could tolerate temperatures hovering around minus 50? Uh, I don't know, but very few, Dave. Uh, Not very many at all. Uh, I mean, you know, I guess sometimes we're forced to endure things that we, you know, we don't really have much choice over. But if I had a choice, I'd say very few. So we fortunately don't get those kind of temperatures very often here in Nova Scotia. Uh, I find the temperatures here even a little bit tough. So if I had a choice over it, if I didn't have to move for work or something like that, I would never move somewhere that gets (laughs) minus 50 temperatures. And I would actually like to live somewhere warmer than here in Nova Scotia. Yeah, the options in Canada are pretty limited if you're actually looking for warm winter weather and uh, even yeah. even the folks on Vancouver Island in the city of Vancouver will tell you uh, that didn't that plan didn't work out so well for them over the course of the last couple of days uh, Laura I'm gonna come back to you in a second on this one but I want to make sure I bring in Alex for his thoughts on this Alex you've lived in the prairies for an extended period of yeah. time you lived in Edmonton I mean that's sort of been one of the news epicenters of this mm-hmm. cold weather uh, where those temperatures were actually touching minus 50 with wind chill for a couple days in a row like oh my gosh (laughs) horrendously terrible so i mean like you obviously did tolerate it but i mean minus 50 Mm -hmm. like like if it had been minus 50 for like seven straight days while you were there come on you you would have hopped on the big bird right away well so from my recollection i remember when i would be out in edmonton for the two winters i was there it was roughly around this time late january there was usually a week to two weeks that you're 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 dancing around minus 35 to minus 40 somewhere in there and i remember it's like okay that is like it was like a week to a week and a half if if i remember correctly and those were like tough tough weeks that was the extent like a week of those extreme temperatures and the problem is like once you get minus 40 to minus 50 i don't think you really notice that much of a tangible difference in between the two it's just cold you're already cold uh 
even with those minus 30 to 40 degree temperatures, it was it was tough. Yeah, you, you kind of just uh, grit your teeth and get through it as best as you can. Try to avoid being outside unnecessarily. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I would say a week tops. Uh, if it had to be like around those minus 50 temperatures, that would be about the maximum I would put up with. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've said a lot of nice things about Winnipeg over the years. Um, Winnipeg, it's not uncommon to get minus 30, you know, four, mm -hmm. five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten days in a row this time of year. Like, it's, it's winter in Canada, right? Like, like, that is one of the realities of the situation of the country where we live. And sometimes it gets a little overblown. But I, I do think that really once, I, I disagree with you a little bit. I think once you really cross that minus 30, minus 35 number, you, you do feel a difference. Like, for example, it feels like minus 15 in Toronto this morning didn't bother me at all. Like, the walk to work was, like, super easy, super casual, super comfortable. In fact, I probably overdressed I was sweating when I came in like you know it was, it was it was one of those situations but I think when you really get to the notion of the sustained minus 35 minus 40 minus 45 Laura if we were to apply the disability lens as three people representing the blind community this morning when you cannot depend on a vehicle that is your own I, I think that really limits the window and the location of where you can live because how on earth could you wait for a bus for 20 minutes or 25 minutes when it's minus 50 outside? Yeah, and I may not be the expert on this because honestly, I don't actually think I've ever experienced temperatures that cold. I mean, it is a little different out here in Halifax. It is a damp cold and it can be quite windy and it kind of goes to your bones but uh yeah certainly you know as I say I find it tough here this time of year and a lot of that you know has to do with uh, not having access to not being able to drive my own vehicle so I think that when you have a disability in the winter in Canada you know a lot of times you are kind of stuck stuck in isolation and trying to make the best of that situation yeah Alex I again I know I, I know sometimes it feels like oh he's really drilling down he's really hammering this like suck it up but I do think that like winter and independent living with a disability it's something that is talked about but I don't think it's necessarily understood outside the community uh, yeah, and, and there's so many different factors and, and people kind of take for granted the idea of, oh, I, I can just hop into a vehicle or, oh, I can just, uh, you know, when it's cold outside, I can just call an Uber. That's not the case for everyone. And regardless uh, from from a, uh, uh, you know, disability standpoint, from a financial standpoint, which is as often yep. gets talked about within yep. these uh, situations, it's like, you know, many people can't afford to have a vehicle, have uh, uh, access to ride sharing, things like that. You, you are reliant on public transit because it is the most affordable option out there so those are all certainly factors and especially when you get certain communities where public transit isn't reliable yeah, it doesn't so exist it doesn't exist it, or it doesn't exist you know it's like and you could be out there waiting at a bus stop for an hour plus sometimes in hoping that a a a bus or public transit does pull up if they're one in the community so these are all uh, like very valid points that you you need to bring into the context of a conversation like this especially when we want to examine the full impact on the disability community because yeah. you can't really have it without it no you you really can't okay let's leave that for a second michelle and i are going to pick up on the weather thread in a second but let's get to the daily polls at accessible media on x at accessible media inc on facebook 
Question on Friday, would you switch companies to get a cheaper cell phone plan? 83% of you said yes, you would go through the bureaucracy and the hassle. 17% of you said no. Taryn writes in, no, Rogers has terrible coverage in Newfoundland and Labrador. Today's topic is all about Blue Monday. Some research suggests it's one of the most difficult mental health days of the year. And the question is this, do you feel this time of year is any more challenging from a mental health perspective, yes or no? One really important piece of caveat here, the idea and notion of Blue Monday was developed by a travel agency company to try and get people to book travel in mid-January. So the origin of Blue Monday has a lack of sincerity around it. However, a bunch of different mental health organizations have taken the opportunity to provide some supporting research and some suggestion to say this is worth discussing today. Hence why I'm bringing this to the table. Laura, I, I quibble with the idea of it being a singular day, that somehow the third Monday of January every year is the most difficult mental health day. I will acknowledge this time of the year might be a little bit sadder, but I, I just think like, if you're not happy on January 2nd, you're probably not happy on March the 2nd either. Yeah, you know, and, and maybe it's just my nature. I'd be very curious in the details of that research and kind of what locations it was done in and uh, that sort of thing. I definitely would agree anecdotally that I find this time of year to be more difficult. I suppose that maybe on January 2nd, you know, people are still coming down off of the holidays. Some people are still not back to work. So maybe there is something about this Monday, you know, if you're working Monday to Friday, which a lot of people aren't, but if you are, then uh, Mondays can be a difficult day. But for me, you know, it's just, it all comes back to that weather and, you know, other times a year being able to get out for a walk in the sun and kind of get that vitamin D, which I think may be part of it as well. Uh, being able to sit out on the grass, it has a huge impact on my mental health and also just sort of that, you know, you can have a lot of passive socialization in the summer. There's a lot of public events happening, even just, you know, going to the park, there might be like a free outdoor concert and you can feel connected to others. Whereas, you know, this time of year and you're coming back to that travel piece, it snowed here last night. So chances are I will not go for my walk today because I think the sidewalks are likely snow covered and very slippery. So yeah, it it, yeah. it does kind of bum me out a little bit this time of year. Yeah, Alex, yeah. I mean, some of some of the research on this about pinpointing either this day or this time of year has to do with with seasonal seasonal affected disorders, right? Like like that's mm -hmm. that's that's really like sort of at the core, like that, that's at the core of some of the research. But I really do feel like perhaps it has less to do with the weather or the sunshine. And I mean in aggregate here, people who have their mm -hmm. own individual their own individual situation. Situations. I'm not here to tell you how you should feel. <laughs> you feel just however you want to. But I actually wonder if it's about mid-January not necessarily giving you a lot to look forward to. Like, like I'm not Mr. Holidays over here. I'm not Mr. Christmas mm -hmm. and Mr. New Year's. But I'm also not Mr. Valentine's Day. I really am no longer Mr. St. Patrick's Day. I, I, do, I do wonder if maybe there's something about this time of year that, yes, the weather is an impact, but it's that what do you have to look forward to? And maybe are you feeling that holiday financial hangover that Aaron Broverman was talking about last week in his segment on Thursday? 
Yeah, so there's a couple of different ways that I, I view it. Like, obviously, as you mentioned, you know, it's the, the, the holiday financial hangover could be certainly part of it. I think it's also, there could be the impact of, of the pressures around, you know, resolutions and things like that. So if you're feeling like, you know, you may have come up short already on a resolution, let's say if it's a financial one, a fitness one, things like that, that's added a weight of, of self-doubt or, or, or kind of pressure you put on yourself and, you know, being two weeks out. Maybe this is kind of that first uh, um, hurdle or, or, or kind of challenge that people may come up against. So that can lead to uh, uh, some uh, mental health issues with that. I also view it as, yes, you know, when, when comparing January to like a, a late February, early March, you know, when you look at the season overall, it's like January is still rather early into the winter season, especially like this year, if you look at it, whereas March is like, you, you've been in those kind of weather stages for a few months. It's been gray many, many days. You still have some time to go before those spring flowers actually start to, to sprout. So I, I find it interesting because I, I, I look at it both sides like, well, okay, you're kind of still early on in the winter season opposed to later in the winter season. Maybe there is that, as you mentioned, there's a bit more to look forward to because you're towards the end of it rather than the beginning. I, I don't like summer. I'm just going to say it right now. I don't like summer. It's too sweaty, too hot. You know, like give me a, maybe don't give me minus 15 or minus 50 or uh, snow squalls. But, but you know, summer summer ain't that great. Summer's super overrated. There you go. Overrated, underrated summer. Uh, at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, do you find this time of year to be more challenging from a mental health perspective? Chime in on social media, chime in via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up next, extreme cold weather. That's the top story of the day, impacting huge swaths of the country over the weekend and still chilly in a bunch of places. Well, you know, let's not lose sight of the fact that it feels like minus 40 in Regina right now. Canadian Press Weekend News Editor Michelle McQuig discusses some of the biggest impacts. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio form at amiplus.ca. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. You know this already. A whole bunch of the country is experiencing some extreme cold weather. It's getting a little bit better, but it's still chilly in a lot of places. The weekend also brought a lot of storms for lots of Canadians, and there are some news elements to explore about the elements. Let's talk about them with Michelle McQuig. Michelle is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Dave. Michelle, it's Canada. It's winter. It's going to be cold. But my goodness. Sure but like my goodness, parts of the country on the weekend. Th there are some meaningful news stories. I, I think the, <laughs> the best place to start is in Alberta, specifically concerns that popped up about the electricity grid in Alberta. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so yeah. Well, like, what's at issue here? Because I think it's gotten pretty political in the last 24 hours. It definitely has. It, 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 this is what's quite interesting right now. But I, I ought to sort of close up what you're saying. That, like, there's cold and then there's Alberta cold right now. For the past several days, They've been in around anywhere between minus 40 and minus 50 with wind chills. So as you can imagine, people want to turn on the heat and turn it up and up. 
as I certainly would too. Um, what's happened though is that this has apparently placed some strain on the province's electricity grid to the point where the province issued or the, or the province's operator rather issued three alerts over the past three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. All of the alerts said similar things that they were urging people to limit power consumption during peak hours and warning that there were there was a potential for some rotating blackouts if they couldn't ease the strain on the system. So far from ideal circumstances during a cold snap like this. Fortunately, people did respond immediately. But where it's gotten political is, of course, people have jumped all over this. People who are opposed to energy conversions and, and converting to greener energy and renewable sources have jumped all over this as evidence that this is not the right way to go. Daniel Smith entered the fray on Friday, like almost immediately after the, the first alert went out, saying a tweet that the you know renewables clearly can't be relied upon when it gets too cold like this. The next day, Scott Moe, who's uh, similarly aligned in terms of his politics and his environmental stances, sent a tweet saying, hey, guess what? Saskatchewan has sent Alberta X amount of megawatts of energy using sources that the federal government wants to shut down, like nuclear, like natural gas and coal. Uh, so that's how that's gone. And of course, people have then been following suit. You've got other local politicians in Alberta joining the fray, other MPs. Uh, Randy Boissonneau, the only liberal has had to come out and kind of defend the government stance a little bit as the only Alberta cabinet minister. Uh, so yeah, it got pretty contentious quite quickly. I I think there this will come during the course of the week, and it's already started. There's got to be a little fact checking on that about how much energy yeah. is truly produced by renewables in these grids, and I'd say specifically the Alberta grid, because because definitely it's a political win. But if only say 10% of your energy is coming from renewables, then it's your actual like carbon-based electricity grid that failed. This is it. There's a lot that needs to be clarified. Um, there's some of the potential complicating factors, like we, there was word that there were a couple of gas plants that were offline that might have been contributing to this. Um, so there's a lot of answers that need to come through. And I think also uh, some explainers that are, yeah, <laughs> there's rife for appetite for explainers on how exactly renewables are going to work in contexts like this, because yeah. surely the fact that winter comes with shorter daylight hours and colder temperatures is not news to, to renewable producers. And I'm sure plans or, or, contingencies of some sort do exist and, and so yeah it, the, it's it's worth noting it's worth noting sorry michelle do you mean to cut you off there no not at all um, please the the state of texas especially the houston area i don't know mm. if you remember this two years ago a couple years ago yeah, that's right ravaged by winter storms absolutely. and their grid went out completely like completely went out their their, their fuel yep. their fossil fuel powered grids went out completely and the parts of texas that didn't get affected were the parts that had heavy investment in renewable so i think i think like there's just a That's lot it. of like there needs to be a lot of context in this story because because I'm, I'm empathetic to the argument that if you're going to convert to a green electric uh, electrified renewable grid yeah there need to be all sorts of contingencies in place but the conversation has to be had in good faith and i feel like a lot a lot of politicians and a lot of people who have it don't have it in good faith. Absolutely. And and the Texas example is a good one. And in fact, it, it came up in the course of the story that my colleague Rob Drinkwater wrote yesterday. It's a good look at this. And it has some of this context from, from people like Andrew Leach, some energy analysts and, and Pamela Institute and a few other people weighing in on this. But the, yeah, the Texas example is a good one because that grid at the time was, was not largely natural gas. That's what got hit really hard. 
And there was some acknowledgement that that can happen in colder temperatures, but that Alberta's system already has more resilient natural gas generators than those that were in place in Texas in 2021. Mm-hmm. So obviously it's on the radar to some degree, but I don't think people necessarily understand how it all works, what the interplay is among other provinces, because that's what advocates are advocating as part of the solution is, is that there needs to be a real mix of providers, renewables, links to other provinces. Natural gas can be part of the solution, but there needs to be a variety to to, to lead to a sustainable grid. So that's, just, you're right though, it is a really complicated one. And I'm sure there might be more alerts. So I don't, I don't imagine yeah, this one's going to yeah. go away anytime soon because it's still going to be pretty cold on the prairies today and possibly into tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, listen, it also happens in the summer with AC putting strain on grids too. It's, it's sure. not common oh, for provinces to reach out and say, hey, t- turn your AC down or turn your AC off during these hours. So it, it's, it's, course, it's a year-round issue. It is. And the, the, the backdrop for all of these arguments, the political, like the broader political piece is the federal's efforts to convert to a green electrical grid by 2035. That's sort of the... the what everyone's going after here is these targets and then the part of this broader push and pull between the feds and the provinces on a lot of environmental issues. So it's not all just about this specific issue. There's always broader context for these fights when they break out. No doubt. Hey, Michelle, it's not just the prairies and extreme cold that made up the weather stories this weekend. Certainly it started in British Columbia with some heavy snowstorms and some freezing weather. In fact, there are some emergency rooms uh, in the, in British Columbia right now that are not, that, that are saying, Hey, you can't come here. Like our pipes froze. Like we can't serve you, which is, I mean, just a stunning, stunning, uh, development it happens, but it's stunning. What are it some does. of the, what are some of the but it was other... happening in Edmonton on Friday as well? Like it happened in a number of facilities across the across the country in small and large centers. So but what are some of the other news elements that struck you, whether it be some of the stuff on the West Coast or even some of the snow that made its way through eastern Ontario uh, through the Montreal Quebec corridor? It was that kind of what struck me was was the scale of everything. We had extreme weather of some form, not always the same, but literally across the whole country. No province or territory went untouched by something to do with much more active winter weather than we're accustomed to. So we had the brutally cold temperatures in BC and the prairies and the territories, of course, like way beyond what we're used to seeing. We saw temperature records falling all over the place. Um, in central Canada, we, like you said, we had a pretty big snowstorm that was, it was sustained. Toronto, where, where I am, didn't get hit too, too badly, although Friday night was a bit of a wild ride. There was, but, a, so, so Michelle, I'm going to cut you off. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm so rude. Please. Ungracious host this morning. My apologies. Friday night was unbelievable. <laughs> I walked home. Yeah, it was pretty wild. I, was... I, I walked home, not a, not a single flake of snow falling, little windy little windy, but not a single flake of snow falling. And I think to myself, gosh, I could really go for a pizza right now. And I order the pizza and Michelle, the tip this driver got from me, because when I looked out oh, my back man. window and a whiteout started, I was apologizing profusely. You felt like such a jerk, of course. <laughs> oh, you were that guy. I okay. was that guy. I was oh, that guy. You know what, though? It did come up, like, there were warnings that that it could start any minute, and it just, it did, and it was a blizzard. And I will say taking uh, Guide Dog out for the last uh, last outing of the night was, was a bit of an adventure in, into a full-on <laughs> blizzard. Like, it was kind of wild. Anyway. And, and um, uh, go, sorry, go ahead. Big, big news element for you, and then I got to follow up. But that was, like, that was the, the minor case. Was Toronto really got bypassed by the bulk of it that was hitting other parts of the, the province into Quebec as well. So other places were getting, you know, 30, 35 centimeters of snow. 
Uh, temperatures are now quite icy in, in a lot of these areas, too. The system seems to be heading our way. And in Atlantic Canada, there were crazy high winds and massive tidal surges, you know, 100 kilometers an hour winds down in trees all over the place. Um, again, not as bad as they've been as that they've seen before, but what I was saying before was just the scope of it all. No part of the country was unscathed this weekend, and that feels kind of unusual in, in, in with a story that's inherently pretty regional. Michelle, let me ask you one question on the way out the door here. It's not the daily poll question, but I think it's a core question that's worth asking a lot of people this morning. It's one of these great mornings on the show where we get people joining from all over the country, and, and it's, just, it, it's just fun to explore this. How many days in a row could you tolerate temperatures that hovered around minus 50 degrees? Is, is zero an option? Yeah, zero is um, an option if you want it. I mean, no, no, no. I, I, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm a hardy Canuck. I can take more than zero. But um, a week. Oh, a week. That, that's uh, Michelle. You're brave. That, that's I mean, brave. I, 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 I would be massively limiting my exposure within said week. But I'll go with a week. <laughs> And, and, you know, I think, I think, and I did this to Laura and Alex, and I don't mean to do it to you, but again, I think it's worthwhile. I think that's where a disability lens and winter, like, really applies. I believe it was the winter of 2018 in Ottawa. It might have been the winter of 2019, where what happened was there was a brutal back-to-back -back snowstorm. Like, I want to say 45 to 60 centimeters fell inside three days, and that was immediately wow. followed by three or four days of between minus 35 and minus 40, and I literally <sighs> couldn't get to the grocery store. Like, like, oh, I, yeah. like I wasn't snowed in. I was, like, I was in no danger of, like, pass, of perishing away, but, like, the, I, the prospect of having to walk the 20 minutes and back to the grocery store through two feet of snow and it's those temperatures, I was yeah. like, no, this isn't happening. Like, it's not Absolutely happening. Not. No, totally. And and you're. I think you're right. I think we have developed some some perhaps some greater tolerance or, or impatience, depending on who you are, I suppose, for this kind of thing because of conditions we navigate. Remember, there was a giant snowstorm that dumped about sixty centimeters on Toronto in fifteen hours or something. I do. January was, of twenty twenty two. That's the one. Yeah. Well, I I was basically stuck here for almost a week because no one cleared my streets. So that was yeah. Like uh, you're right that there disability offers up some conditions that perhaps get us a little more used to these inconveniences <laughs> than then we might otherwise be. <laughs> That's why we keep a lot of cereal in our pantry, just you know, just just to make just to make sure to stock up when necessary, fuel with the carbohydrates. Hey, Michelle, uh, I I mismanaged the clock. Gotta go. No no time to get to our second story. That's all right. It's one I might bring to the news panel on Friday. All the best to you, Michelle. Uh, enjoy those uh, cold walks with the guide dog. Oh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> Have a great week, everybody. Take care. <laughs> That's Michelle McQuig, weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up next, the winners of the Build Together Inclusive Innovation Challenge have been announced. Marco Pasqua will share his thoughts on the competition. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Build Together Inclusive Innovation Challenge has announced their winners. The challenge asks innovators to solve accessibility issues with hardware and software. There are a couple different categories, swimming, travel, gaming. The competition caught Marco Pasqua's attention. Marco is the co-founder of Meaningful Access Consulting. Hey, good morning, Marco. Good morning, Dave. Marco, you've worked on competitions like this before. You didn't work on this one, but I think to start broadly is a good spot here. Why do you think competitions like this are important? Why do they matter? Well, they they encourage you know innovation across uh, across the world, really. And I think you know the more that we're seeing people delve into you know things like gaming. You know, gaming I think was the catalyst. It was the starting point for people because it could make sense about making adaptive controllers and things like this. But now expanding this into things that we do for recreation and quality of life, like swimming and other components, and just navigating our community, um, I think is really really important. It also challenges people potentially who are outside of the space of the disability community to think differently and to understand how barriers in our communities can really make an impact. And I'm starting to see that from uh, innovators, uh, you know, as young as individuals in college age and younger, uh, all the way up to individuals who've seen accessibility changes over the years and want to be part of that change. You know, Marco, to me, that's part of the evolution here inside the last 10 to 15 years. You and I have talked about universal design a ton in these segments. Thea Curdy yeah. and I used to talk about it all the time about some of the work <laughs> that she was doing in the architecture world, trying to get to standards of universal design, but also yes. trying to influence the minds of young innovators, getting into engineering schools and architecture schools and getting people to consider disability. To me, that's the evolution, that in the last 10 to 15 years, yep. it's not just a couple people with disabilities like you and me talking about this, it's a lot mm -hmm. of people realizing the prospects. Well, and so many people are impacted by disability, whether they have a disability or not. So I think that people are starting to get it. Finally, you know, universal design means they're not building for the disability community, they're building for everyone. So it's perfect that this competition is called the Build Together uh, Inclusive Innovation Challenge, because that's exactly what it is. And not only that, but all of the blueprints, Dave, I'm not sure if you uh, recognize this on the website or anything like this, but all the blueprints, all of the software code that may be used on any of these innovations, it's all made public to everybody so they're literally saying hey listen let's get this out to the masses and if you want to rebuild this object or this item that i've created you can do it too and here's the blueprints it, one of the things that i liked in the way the rules of the competition were set out is it said you can use any existing hardware or software and then then mix it up however you like to figure out how to solve a challenge. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of the swimming innovations really jumped yes. off the page to me because there was stuff like, hey, here's a simple set of goggles that has sensors built in. Here's a flutter, yep. a flutter kickboard that has sensors <laughs> built in. And then I think about stuff like, um, there's like a drowning sensor that was also uh, wow. one of the finalists where it's like you you put this on you and if you find yourself in distress and, be, and find yourself in a harmful situation, the sensor is going to either alert the lifeguard or someone around the pool to let you know that you're in a tricky spot. I, I, but I'm really struck in terms of the products that made a splash for me, thinking about a combination of the very basic and the very complex. 
Yeah, 100%. And I actually don't know if you know this about me, Dave, but I was a competitive athlete in the BC Summer and Winter Games. And the reason why the swimming stuff stood out to me is that one year during the BC Games, I was actually waiting in my lane after completing, and a blind swimmer competition was happening next after mine. Now, one of the swimmers didn't know that I was in the lane, obviously, as he was a, a blind swimmer. He dove into the lane that I was in, not realizing that I was still right there. Uh, I didn't have time to warn him. He hit me, knocked me unconscious. Oh, gosh. And I had to actually be rescued from my coaching team, uh, you know, because I got knocked out. Uh, now, with innovations like this, where you could actually have a sensor that somebody is below the water or drowning, or or the grand prize winner, which was a beacon sensor, which warns swimmers who have a vision loss that they're three meters from the wall or three meters from the edge. Yeah, we've got some great graphics for those on AMI-TV right now. Um, it's, it's a really interesting thing. I watched it. You can 3D uh, print the casing, and he's... Um, actually listed out the software that you need in order to make this happen. So this is why it struck me uh, literally when I saw this, because I was like, how cool would it be to make sure that everybody knows where the parameters are um, and the boundaries within the swimming pool, but also for safety for everybody. So I was just really excited by this and how cool that you can actually re recreate um, this innovation in your own home if you have the right tools. I remember covering a, a Paralympic gala. This is almost eight years ago now, but one of the people being honored was one of the uh, innovators in the early days of blind swimming who developed what was called the tapping technique, where they used to use a pole to tap the swimmer, a long stick to tap the swimmer oh, when they got close to the edge of the pool. How far we've come from just using a long <laughs> stick to using sensors and 3D printing. Yeah, well, this goes to show you what can happen, right? I think the reason that this has happened, Dave, is because technology is changing every single day. With the advent of 3D printers, um, with new AI technology coming out every single day, we're going to see more and more of these things pop up, and no longer are they going to be niches for persons with disabilities, but for everyone to create communities which are more inclusive in general. And that's the part that excites me the most. Marco, I think there's a sort of broader thought to wrap this up, because some someone at home might be sitting there and saying, swimming, gaming, travel, like, come on, guys, <laughs> like, those aren't the real issues impacting people with disabilities. But if I were to sort of quibble with that criticism, I would say, but these are all quality of life things. And the quality of life and the disability experience, it's a spectrum. Oh, 100%. And people with disabilities are no longer just fixed to their homes, um, you know, collecting paychecks in many cases, right? Uh, there's a lot of opportunity for people out there who want to have gainful employment, but also want to have a good time and live a great life and go on vacations and travel and do all of these things. And the more that we can have technology that can support us to do this, regardless of our disability, as you said, it is a spectrum, then more and more people can get out there and experience life and share those experiences. So for me, it really brings that sense of hope and, and the willingness to bring people together, but also family, because I'm a family man. I want to be able to go on more vacations with my daughter. And the more that I can do that in a way where she doesn't see my disability, she just sees dad out there with her having a good time. If it's because of technology, that's fantastic. Marco, let's wrap up on the weather conversation. And I'm sure, again, the sure. listener at home or the viewer at home is getting really cranky now. Dave, enough with the weather, enough with the weather. Well, spoiler alert, Alex Smythe is going to have the weather story of the day in just about a minute, <laughs> a minute or two here. But, Marco, weather is the story. And you guys got it first out there on the West Coast in the Vancouver area. And you guys oh, yeah. got some pretty significant snow. The lower mainland, people were slipping and sliding everywhere. It's still quite cold by Vancouver standards out there this morning. But I want to ask you this. 
Marco. This is the core question when we think yeah. about our friends in Regina and Calgary and Edmonton who are dealing with those minus 40 and minus 50 degree days. How many days in a row do you think you could tolerate a temperature around minus 50? Well, listen, I've told you before, my wife can tell me how much snow has fallen by the amount of uh, swearing she hears coming out of my mouth in the morning when I look out the window. So I don't know, right? I, I think as far as, as far as the tolerance is concerned, I could handle maybe a week, week and a half. But honestly, it's tough. You know, when I had to wheel uh, around the community, even at minus 14 here in BC, that's a lot for, for BC. And it's a different kind of temperature than it is in the east. And it was challenging, you know, making sure I had my gloves on because I have to have touch my hand rims on my chair as I'm wheeling. Um, so yeah, things like groceries, things like just j basic survival things, I think would be really tough for a lot of people. So hopefully we don't have to experience too many more of these things, but we know uh, that these extremes uh, have come and gone and they'll probably come again. So we got to be more prepared, Dave. Get get your stock ups, get your apocalyptic uh, pantry <laughs> ready uh, for anything that happens, right? Well, that's what the Torontonians are saying today. Oh, it feels like minus 15 outside. It's the end of the world. I actually saw oh, a woman uh, go jogging this morning right by me wearing like leggings and a sweater. I was, I was blown away. I was impressed. <laughs> and disgusted it all at once. Uh, Marco, thank you for this. Uh, thanks so much, Dave. We'll talk to you soon. That's Marco Pasqua. He's the co-founder of Meaningful Access Consulting. In 60 seconds, Alex Smythe will have the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Rob Westgate with your Morning Business Minute. Bay Street ended last week on a positive note, while Wall Street ended lower. Toronto's S&P TSX gaining 72 points to close at 20,990, while in New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average slipped 118 points down to 37,593. The Nasdaq, it inched forward just over 2.5 points to 14,973. Asian markets were mixed this morning, with Japan's Nikkei finishing up 325 points at 35,902, while the Hang Seng in Hong Kong dipped 28 points to close at 16,216. Statistics Canada this Tuesday will have the December Consumer Price Index report, and economists say it's likely to come in above November's 3.1%. And ahead of this month's World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, Oxfam International says the world could have its first trillionaire within a decade. The Looney trading at 74.58 cents US from the Canadian Press Business Desk. I'm Rob Westgate. Thank you very much, Rob. So what you're saying is I have six years to hit that uh, trillion mark. I'll do my best, I promise, Rob. I'll do my best. Let's bring in Alex Smythe for the weather story of the day. You know, Alex, I uh, don't need a trillion. I'll, I'll settle for a billion. But in the meantime, uh, there are some big numbers flying around in the weather world. Yeah, Dave. So obviously, you know, the topic of the conversation has been around this weather storm. I wanted to dissect some of the, the records or, or uh, big, big numbers from the weekend, specifically in B.C. and Alberta. So let's start over in B.C. because at Vancouver Airport, a wind chills reached minus 24, and that is the coldest they have been since 1968. And things in Victoria may were warmer, but they still also had decade-long uh, streaks broken. So in Victoria, was minus 6.6 .6 degrees. That was the coldest high since 1972. 
Now for actual new records, we look to the interior because in Sparwood, it was minus 40 degrees, minus 40.3 to be exact, which set new records, along with Penticton, which set a new record at minus 27.6 degrees. Now you did mention in your first uh, segment about the energy. So uh, the number came out on Friday. Uh, BC Hydro announced that 11,300 megawatts of energy were used on that Friday when it was really cold. That's roughly the equivalent of enough power to uh, service 8.5 million homes under normal circumstances. So that was a record amount of energy. And also part of that was because they were supporting Alberta as well. Speaking of Alberta, new records in the uh, temperatures, minus 51.5 degrees was felt in Keg River. That's a new record. In Edmonton, as we had talked about before, it was the fourth coldest day ever recorded. So you had minus 45.8 degrees at nighttime and a daytime high of minus 34.4. So that was the day and the nighttime both setting near records in Edmonton. Calgary, it was the coldest day in three decades with minus 30.4 as the high. So lots of big numbers, lots of records, near records, just to show the scale and the impact of the storm this weekend. Alex, there was this great video that came out of Saskatchewan this morning of a woman freezing her tail off using uh, uh, her, her ice scraper to get snow off the top of her car, screaming, this is why we don't have poisonous snakes and I'm grateful. So this is why we uh, lack in poisonous snakes, and we are grateful. You know, uh, we take our wins where we can find them. Alex, thank you for this. Yep, thank you, Dave. That's Alex Smythe with the weather story of the day. Coming up next, Good Grief is a new film on Netflix that stars Dan Levy. Amy Manti has the review. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Good Grief is getting quite a bit of buzz on Netflix. It stars Dan Levy, Dan Levy, and it explores the concepts and emotions of what happens after a friend passes away. Amy Amanti is going to have a review of the film in just a moment, but here's a clip from the trailer. Do I look older to you? I feel like I've aged a lot. No. Yes! Your husband just died. You're allowed. My God. A film by Daniel Levy. Friends recline on couches. They participate in exercise classes together. I wanted to thank you both for this year. I would like to take us to Paris for the weekend. We all deserve some joy. Yes, thank you. Where are we staying? A taxi drives through Paris. The widower, Mark, stares out the window. He and his friends arrive at their rental flat. This is sexy. At a restaurant, a couple kisses as Mark looks on sadly. You must miss him. It's complicated. Yeah, love is that way. Are you okay? Oliver met someone else. His friends look on in shock. I'm sorry you're having to deal with that, but I'm allowed to feel things too. My husband officially died a year ago today. Such a meticulous person. 
he left behind one hell of a mess. Entertainment critic has Amy Manti has some thoughts on the film. Hey, good morning, Amy. Good morning, Dave. Amy, kind of tough to sort of uh, go hee-haw after uh, that trailer. I think that kind of sets the tone a little bit. This is Dan Levy's directorial debut. That doesn't mean that he's not had his creative fingerprints on a whole bunch of projects over the years. But what stood out to you about this film? You know, a big fan of Schitt's Creek, of course, um, and his comedy genius. And I wanted to see how he adapted um, his writing style, because he also wrote this film, um, and his directorial style to something that was a little bit more somber. And I also really wanted to see how he brought representation into this type of storytelling. Um, so some of the things that really stood out to me in this particular film is um, how they integrated this authenticity of the way this type of storytelling is. Um, and we'll, we'll get into a little bit of that uh, in just a minute. Um, but I really thought that there was some lovely moments in this film. Um, and there was a really nice balance between um, the way the storytelling is woven through this film and um, the way that the characters are written and the way that the acting is, uh, is balanced together. So there's a, a lot of really nice moments in this film uh, that I really appreciated. So a lot of that really stood out to me. Let, let's talk about the acting, because when you're looking yeah. for that kind of emotional depth, that requires mm -hmm. both the incredible individual performer to make that work, but it yeah. also requires meaningful chemistry. So what was the interplay on screen? Yeah, so definitely a lot of chemistry. I mean, you've got um, a, a homosexual relationship here. You've got two husbands that are having a very complicated marriage. And us as the audience, we don't know that at first. You know, they sort of give it up in the trailer, um, but they seem to be a very happy couple. Um, and obviously, you know that his husband, Mark's husband, Oliver, dies. Um, and uh, there becomes this moment where... Mark says to his friends, you know what? Um, we're gonna just go away. You've supported me for this year. Let's just go away. And the reason they go away is because he finds out, it's not really a spoiler because you know that they go to Paris, but he finds out that Oliver owns this flat in Paris and uh, he wants to check out what it is about this flat. Um, and that's when you find out, as they say in the trailer, that he had met somebody else. And so there's this unraveling, unraveling of this story and the chemistry between the husband and husband and the chemistry between the friends that support um, both characters, truly, because um, at the beginning when we see the support of them as a couple and then now the support of the solo when we see the unraveling of who Oliver was, who everybody loved, and now who Oliver uh, has turned out to be, who people are like, I don't know what to do with that because this is a person that we loved as a friend and partner, but maybe, you know, had some secrets. You know, what do you do with that? And so emotionally, you see this in these characters, um, not in what they say, but in, in the emotion on their faces and the emotion in their voices, right? That's mm. the subtext um, that comes through really nicely. You mentioned the representation side, especially when it comes to 2S LGBTQ plus content and the fact that this is directed, written and starring Dan Levy, who's part of the yeah. community. Where where does this fit into the broader conversation that you and I have been having for about a decade now about representation on film? And by the way, that, that conversation spans more than a decade, but you and I have been <laughs> having it for about a decade together. Yeah. 
for sure, for sure. Um, so here's what I thought was really interesting. A lot of times when we see certainly stories that have two men that are in a couple or um, are married, a lot of times we see very um, gratuitous or overly exaggerated examples, stereotypical examples of what an air quotes gay couple should be or what that looks like because that may not be written by somebody who is a, a community member and so what i thought from this particular piece was that none of that was gratuitous like we weren't looking at um you know gratuitous love scenes we weren't looking at any of those kinds of things that i have often seen in movies that have this kind of relationship experience um but these were movies that had a, a very very much um felt like what you would write as a literally a mainstream uh heterosexual couple and that's i think what um what i've heard from my friends in 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 you know the 2s lgbtq plus community saying is we're not a stereotype we're not a right like we live air quotes everyday lives just like everybody else and so that i think was really nice to see from a representational perspective is that there is no like stereotypical thing they're not dressed in a stereotypical way they're not they don't have um uh, mannerisms that are stereotypical you know they're not walking around with flamboyance in their body language they're not you know they don't have jobs that are stereotypical so th there was a really nice tone to this that felt um different than things that i had seen before uh, amy um, i've i've, I've got to i've got to interrupt you a yeah. little bit here though because i i don't i don't mean to be sort of like that guy that jerk but i think yeah. this is why authenticity really matters in terms of yeah. who writes directs and stars in this because even if some of those stereotypes were shown on screen if it came from a community member sure. there's a there's more of a permission structure to that right like you and i you and i both deeply care about disability representation but also acknowledge that there is a wide swath of how we ourselves would want to be portrayed as a person with a disability on on screen like like you and I are not the same and therefore so long as the authenticity is there in the creation that sort of gives permission structures absolutely Dave you're absolutely right about that I just um I just think that oftentimes um, and maybe not so much in the last couple of years but we definitely in the last 10 plus years when we have seen characters um, with this lived experience written before they are based on stereotypes yes. in a big way just like disability characters yeah. are very much based right because they're not necessarily written from they, they serve a very specific purpose in a film mm -hmm. and, uh, and this was a very different film uh, that that these characters weren't weren't uh, weren't necessarily the butt of the joke or serving that sort of comedic purpose. Yeah, drivers of the story, not that's right. not reactors to the story, which yeah, that that's exactly. a big that's a big part of it as well. Uh, Amy, yeah. just a quick thought here on audio description, because yeah. obviously when you're going to Paris, there's a lot of cool stuff you could describe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, there's a lot of room to describe in this particular film, um, as you may imagine. There's a lot of moments where characters are contemplating to the sound of music um, that happens in the background. Uh, so there are lots of moments of uh, room for description. And I thought they did sort of a halfway job in, you know, saying that, you know, they're, they're going through Paris and it's a typical Parisian architecture, but that's nice. What is Parisian architecture, right? So there were moments where they could have taken that just a little bit further um, to just give me a little bit more flavor, but they did a half decent job of, of, um, 
reminding me where we were and allowing me to be a part of of Paris and the Parisian atmosphere, um, which is one of the things I'm always looking for in a film is like, do I feel like I'm there with the characters? Am I along for the journey, right? Amy, I don't think I'm currently in the right place emotionally to play on this one, but would you recommend people hit play on this one, generally speaking, the non-Dave Browns of the world? Yeah, you're, you're right. You have to go into this with a certain... Um, a certain yeah absolutely a certain uh, emotional context to go into this it certainly isn't the kind of thing you're like oh i want a great comedy and you hit play on this um so i too hit start and stop a few times on this because i just wasn't ready for it uh, but it's a beautiful film and if you uh, have a time to hit play on it and you're ready for it do it. Um, it doesn't have to be tomorrow. You can add it to your playlist, and when you're ready for it, I think it's worth a watch. Right on. Amy, thank you for this. Have a, a lovely day. Just before I say goodbye to you, I'm asking everybody this question this morning. Marco Pasqua in the last segment talked about mm -hmm. some of the uh, winter weather y'all had out there in Vancouver the last couple days, unseasonably yep. wintry. Here's the core yep. question that I'm asking everybody, because we're thinking about our friends in the prairies. Always about our friends in the prairies. Oh. Amy, how many days in a row do you think you could tolerate temperatures around minus 50? Uh, one hour. <laughs> Not even a day. <laughs> Land at the airport in Edmonton, turn right back around and fly back to Vancouver. Not even a question. I step one foot out, I go one, one, foot, back, one foot back in. Oh my gosh. Amy, you're the best. Have a great day. Thanks, Dave. You too. That's Amy Amanti, entertainment critic based in Vancouver, British Columbia, with a review of Good Grief. You can find Good Grief on Netflix. Let's stay in the world of entertainment with Laura Bain. Laura, the Critics' Choice folks handed out their awards last night. It really is awards season for movie and TV. Yeah, it certainly is. We have the Emmys happening tonight. So the Critics' Choice Award honors the best in TV and film. I find it a little hard to keep them all straight. That's kind of similar to oh, the Golden man. Globes, which happened last week, <laughs> yeah. which also honor the best in TV and film. Um, so this is according to the American Canadian Critics' Choice Association, uh, their picks for the best in TV and film. So uh, very similar kind of outcomes to what we saw with the Golden Globes last week. Oppenheimer was a big winner, taking home eight awards including for Best Picture. Now, Barbie did a little bit better at the Critics' Choice Awards than it did at the Golden Globes. It took home six awards, including for Best Comedy. But, Dave, you have to keep in mind it was nominated in 18 categories. So, you know, it's all kind of relative whether that was a big win for Barbie or not. Um, you know, did win in terms of uh, costume design and hair and makeup, which definitely the film for me stood out in terms of that. On the TV side of things, we had Succession, again, taking Best Drama Series and winning quite a few awards, and The Bear for Best Comedy mm -hmm. Series. That's one I haven't seen, but I, you, you said it was pretty good. I need to check that one out. But like people tell have said the last two seasons of that show are two of the best shows, uh, seasons of television of the last decade. Yeah, um, and that, that's a Disney Plus one, right? That's on, it's on the FX tab in uh, Disney Plus. Right, right. Because there are many, many uh, tabs inside Disney+. Plus. Good luck trying yeah. to find anything. Yeah, I, I don't find it quite as user-friendly as something <laughs> like Netflix. But uh, other news from last night was actor Harrison Ford being honored with a Career Achievement Award. Uh, you know, he received a standing ovation. The award was given out by director James Mangold. And he said in part... 
that Harrison Ford is a star so big, he contains multitudes. A star so unique, he attracts other stars. A star so bright, he is he has warmed each of our lives in this room, in our audience, and likely on this planet. So wow, very <laughs> Wow. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. I, I um, can't so imagine somebody saying that about me. Yeah. Well, I I don't know, Dave. I might say that about you. Uh, don't be so hard okay. on yourself there. When I get my um, career when I get my career achievement award, uh, you get to give the speech. Okay. Um, well, I brought this topic forward this morning, and it was suggested by so moving on some on the team that Harrison Ford might be perhaps overrated, and some of the hype around him might be related to the roles he's been cast in rather than his own kind of acting abilities. And I know you had some thoughts on this, and you sort of threw this question out there at the same time, and I'm going to just throw that question right back at you, Dave, and say, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Let, let's name names here. Senior producer Andrika Delanerol does not get to hide. Uh, was sort of questioning the overall merits of Harrison Ford. And I fired back with a quote from Air Force One, get off my plane. And then I talked about the fugitive. And then you consider things like Indiana Jones and of course, all of those Star Wars movies. But Laura, I'm I'm kind of, I, I'm, I'm swayed by Andrika's position of, was that the quality of the movies rather than the quality of him as a performer? But when I really think about it, I don't know if you can do those movies without Harrison Ford, right? At that time in the 90s when they made Air Force One, he sort of had that elderly action star, but still had a presidential veneer about him. So sometimes I wonder if it's maybe not about the individual acting chops, but your presence on screen, and as a star, if anybody could replace you in that role. So I actually think it is possible for someone to be perhaps overrated and underrated all at once, because it's just the way they're perceived rather than the way they perform. Hmm, yeah, that's really interesting. I was sort of kind of wondering where you would go with that because I was thinking, well, sure, you know, overrated by some, underrated by others, perhaps. Um, and, you know, my response in that email chain was that I don't really have a lot of thoughts on this. And, you know, I think the reason for that is, you know, certainly I've watched the original Star Wars, but the types of films that Harrison Ford has been cast in just really weren't my jam. They were sort of more action-based and particularly before we had widespread audio description in the 90s I yeah. found those films very difficult to follow so I tended to kind of not watch them even though they were like huge films and I was aware of that um, but I think also for myself I've just never really been one to follow actors so much as I know some people do certainly when I watch a film I notice if there's good acting or maybe bad acting but I don't always connect the through line of someone's career and tend to tune into things because of particular actors mm. with a few exceptions, including Dan Levy, who I'm a huge fan of, who you talked of in the, in the last <laughs> segment. But, uh, you know, and I also, I guess, perhaps tend to be overly charitable and think, well, people just, you know, to get to that level, I think you do have to have a strong acting ability and perhaps they just weren't in the uh, right fit for the role or they just yeah. had an interpretation that I wasn't a huge fan of. Actors like Adam Sandler and Owen Wilson maybe came come to mind Ooh. for me as actors that I found a little difficult at times, but um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's Adam a, Sandler, it, that is a great example of perhaps yeah. underrated and overrated at the exact same time. That, that That's a perfect example. Uh, Laura, just on the way out here, I do want to give Harrison Ford some flowers, though, because he was the co-star in a television show called Shrinking that came out in the last year and a half or so that was a Mike Lawrence show, so think uh, Ted Lasso, 
really think Scrubs, you know, some pretty important shows of the last 20 years. And apparently Harrison Ford's performance as an aging psychiatrist, unbelievably good. Got a lot of praise for that role. So Harrison Ford may still have the fastball and we're not giving him the love that he deserves. But with that, Laura, I must say goodbye to you. I'll have to check that out. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> have a lovely day. That's Laura Bain at the Entertainment Desk coming up after the break. A couple concerns being floated from child care providers in Ontario with the $10 a day program and the funding challenges that presents. All of that story in the regional news update. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv in audio form at amiplus.ca and on demand on the mighty AMI-audio podcast network. I'm Dave Brown. It's Monday, January the 15th, 2024. Coming up in the second hour of the show, the city of Calgary is converting downtown offices into apartments. Cheryl McMullen explains the program. There will also be some CES talk, all kinds of new tech innovations were shown off, including robot butlers, oh, yeah, sure, and flying cars. Oh, oh, oh. Sean Priest will give you the scoop. And you know the pulse on AMI Audio. That's a show that I used to host. It's now hosted by Joita Gupta. It's got a whole bunch of new episodes coming down the pipeline, so Joita's going to stop by to give you a preview. But the hour begins with the regional news updates. Beginning in the prairies, a coroner's inquest into the mass stabbing on a Saskatchewan First Nation begins today. Kelly Malone has more. 11 people were killed and 17 others injured when Miles Sanderson brought death and chaos to the James Smith Cree Nation and the nearby village of Weldon on September 4th, 2022. Sanderson died in police custody a few days later. The inquest is to establish the events leading up to the death, who died and when and where each person was killed. It may also bring recommendations to prevent similar occurrences. James Smith Cree Nation Chief Wally Burns has said the inquest will likely resurface trauma from the deadly rampage, but he also hopes it'll help the First Nation find healing. Kelly Malone, The Canadian Press, Melfort. And over to Ontario. Ontario's largest childcare operator is expressing concerns about funding. The YMCA says it's at risk of closing if the provincial government does not change compensation under the $10 a day daycare program. YMCA Oakville President Kyle Barber explains the situation. With this change, many Ys across the province are finding that the current funding approach is insufficient and is not covering the true costs of program delivery, leaving us with funding shortfalls and creating uncertainty going forward. Daycare providers did receive a 2.1% funding increase for 2024. All right, that's your look at the regional news. Let's uh, say hello to Brock Richardson for Sports Chat. Brock, let's start with the NFL wildcard weekend, which is not even over yet. In aggregate, the football was pretty terrible. I did tell you on Friday, watch out for Houston Texans rookie quarterback C.J. Stroud. I told you he's one of the emerging stars in the game. I'm not sure if you believed me, 
but I think you believe me today. Yeah, I do. And I have to tell you, I, I didn't, I wouldn't say that I didn't believe you, but I wasn't on board. I was like, eh, Houston Texans, you know what, as it goes, but I am on board. And the reason I'm on board is because he's young and he's the youngest quarterback, as you you mentioned, and he's now the youngest quarterback to win a playoff game. And so what I like about what I saw is that he just, he has no fear. And I remember when I first started in sports, you know, and you get to the higher levels and you start to think, okay, I'm doing this. I'm, I'm feeling good. And that's what I see about him. I see no fear and I just see him playing loose and just kind of relying on his, uh, you know, offensive line to keep people away from him. And that's exactly what happened. And, and the team played well around him. So I, I'm on board with CJ, CJ Stroud. Totally electric. Like you said, youngest player to youngest quarterback to ever win a playoff game. And he also set a, a rookie record in the playoffs for uh, passing yards. So yeah, a lot of really, really positive stuff from CJ on Saturday as the Houston Texans got by the Cleveland Browns. Saturday nights, folks were uh, freezing their tails off in Kansas City. The Dolphins lost to the Chiefs, but Brock, the football was awful objectively an awful game but something really annoyed you about that game something annoyed me too but what annoyed you yes the whole taylor swift every time her boyfriend travis kelsey wide receiver caught the ball we had to look at her and oh my goodness travis kelsey and yada yada but the funny thing is dave when travis kelsey dropped the football we didn't see taylor swift and then the next morning it continued because uh, Taylor Swift was apparently annoyed because her the window of her of her box was uh, frozen. clouded it was, over. It was clouded over. It was so frozen. She, it was freezing. So she she couldn't see. And then there was this whole image of her behind the glass with it all fogged up and all this. And it said new album cover for Taylor Swift. And the album should be called Frozen. Is what the social media was going on about. So I'm tired of Taylor Swift. Um, but anyway, uh, in other news, also Patrick Mahomes is now 12-3 and all-time in his playoff career. So he knows how to play football in the playoffs. And I do think they are on a roll and ready to, hopefully for them, get back to the Super Bowl. I think they're in fine form right at the moment. Uh, the Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah, sure, if you say so. Let, let's actually see them play a real team next week. Uh, Brock, what annoyed me is even though uh, CTV and TSN knew that NBC's coverage was going to get flipped off to the digital Peacock world as soon as the game started at 8.15, guess who was not ready to flip the switch? TSN and CTV. And for about the first five minutes of the broadcast, you were stuck watching a really, really awful uh, pre-game or side game or some kind of cruddy NBC broadcast. The fact that TSN and CTV did not have their stuff together for that for a playoff game was amateur hour, total amateur hour. Like, I couldn't and, believe and it. And let's also be very clear about something. They knew about this forever. Yep, like whole, it week. Was, whole week. It was a huge talking was, point. This was not like it was like, oh, wait, what, what, where did this go? They, they, they knew this was coming, and I was also annoyed in the fact that it was split screen with the NBC, the regular broadcasting, we're going to carry you through the first, you know, 15 minutes. Of, it was horrible. I agree. Yeah. That should have been the thing that bothered me first and foremost, no, but it was Taylor Swift. No, that, no, that said, uh, TSN and CTV did make the switch probably within about five minutes, but it was still really, it was still really amateur hour yeah. because of the fact that it was explicitly stated. 
hundreds of times between 4 p.m. and 8 p.m. So somebody in master control wasn't paying attention. And that, that annoys me. That annoys yeah, me. And your job, your job is, I'm not going to say purely, but like your main job there is switch it over. Yeah, so, yeah, switch it over, please. Yeah. Like, with, yeah. like, we're trying to watch this game here. Hey, Brock, <laughs> yeah, let, let, yeah. let's let's put the NFL to the side. Let's get to a, a quick mention of women's hockey here. The women's U17 Hockey World Championships took place over the weekend. Uh, Canada didn't quite get the exact outcome they wanted, but I think women's hockey overall got a pretty great outcome here. Yes, they did, and they won the game against Finland, the bronze medal game, eight to one, which is cool and. I think this is good. I The one thing that I would say, Dave, is I wish there was just a tad more publicity with the, the, the you know, the Women's Professional Hockey League. I know that they used it a little bit and they're piggybacking it. I just wish there was a little bit more push forward of this tournament. You see the World Juniors for the men get really pushed and everyone gets excited about it. And I know we're talking about two different things, but kind of the same. I just wish there was a little more publicity than what we received to be honest, because I, I didn't know when they played most of the time. Well, so. TSN's credit, they were sending out the push notifications when games were starting uh, on the phone, so uh, there is that. What I wanted to mention here, Brock, is that the USA won. That's not really a surprise. But again, the idea that Canada ended up in the bronze medal game and Czechia... Uh, found themselves in the uh, gold medal game against the United States. This is the thing that you're looking for in the development of women's hockey, that it's not Canada-USA, 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 over and over and over and over and over again ad nauseum. This is the true development of the sport, and the fact that Czechia's men's program is on the rise and Slovakia's men's program is on the rise and that their women's programs are following suit really tell you that there, there's, there's, there's something tangible changing in the sport and that is a good thing brock have a great day talk to you tomorrow you as well that is brock richardson at the ami sports desk coming up oh my gosh so much technology got shown off at ces including some innovations like robot butlers i'm gonna throw a meh at that one but what about flying cars come on now we were promised this many years ago give me these flying cars John Priest gives you the scoop. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Do you remember what I told you last Thursday? I said in the context of CES, what used to be known as the Consumer Electronics Show, I was going to apply a lens to all of these different topics, different pieces of technology and innovations that were unveiled. And the fundamental question is useful or useless? And there's so much that pops up at CES that it's going to take a couple of segments to play this game in earnest. So let's play it once again, this time with Sean Priest, one of the hosts of Double Tap. Hey, good morning, Sean. 
Oh, no. I feel like I'm on a loser here already. No. Good morning, Dave. How are you? No, no. Marco Flalo had the loser with the R with the robot, uh, rabbit robot R1 last week. That was that was the loser for me. I think you got some good stuff here. I think you got some good stuff here. So, we'll see. <laughs> so let's, let's start with uh, the Supernal SA2. It's being touted as a flying car developed by <laughs> Hyundai. Uh, Sean, before we address useful or useless flying car, this has been promised to us since like Back to the Future in the 1980s and science fiction well before that. Like, how, how close are we here? Like, how flying car is this flying car? Well, um, well, now, do you want me to be honest? Yes. Or, oh, no, well, I've lost it. <laughs> <laughs> no, listen, it's 2024. We're living in the future as it is. So, of course, they're just around the corner, probably. But, no, you're absolutely right. These have been promised for the longest time, right? These are James bond style submarines, flying cars, whatever it may be. <laughs> you're absolutely right. They've been promised for the longest time. But the reason I... I, I, I looked at this one is because I do like to check in on this technology to see how close we are and particularly over the last what seven eight ten years maybe with the um with the evolution of drones and that technology has really grown um and basically that's the direction that all flying cars seem to be taking now no longer are you strapping wings on and you know taking off on a runway it is all about vertical takeoff using the propellers and more importantly, being powered by electricity, battery-powered rather than petrol or gas. So I, I thought I'd take another look at this because, as you said, we've seen them before, 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 and this is the A2 refers to. This is the second gen. The first one was uh, first shown in 2020, I believe it says. So this is actually very interesting because it is all electric. It's powered by eight um, propellers, electric propellers, and it is just a standard car, um, but it can vertically take off and land. You don't need to charge it between every single flight. It could do four or five flights. I think it flies at something like 1,500 feet. It carries four people. Um, I just, I'm just really interested to see how this technology takes off. Uh, forgive the pun. Oh, my but, God. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you. I've been working on that one. AI helped me. <laughs> no, it's... it's <laughs> Because I think this, honestly, I think um, it, it is the dream, right? Do away with traffic jams and the commute and things like that. Plus the amount of, you know, depending how much of a green warrior you are, eco-warrior you are, you know, cutting down on these short um, flights, it could have a huge impact. So when it comes to transport, I think these are going to happen. And I'm very interested in technology. But as this one says, um, they're not planning anything. They say they are launching in 2028. Okay. And the test, the test flights, the actual time it takes off, will be the end of this year internally. So they're testing it out and, and trying it, uh, sort of the beta tests, if you will, okay. at the end of this year. But the technology behind it itself, the battery technology, as I said, you can take, I think it's up to 40-minute flights, and you'd have to charge in between, so you'd have to wait a, right, two hours right. between a return flight. Okay. And the amount of people it can hold, and just the technology behind it, I think is very interesting. So, yes, we can't take off just yet, but I think we're getting there.
Sean, sometimes I like to give myself these moments of delightful surprise. So I deliberately did not look at the images of this flying car until you brought it up. And you did a really cool job of describing it, but I'm just gonna refine it a smidge. Just for somebody Please. at home who, 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 can't, who can't see it, it's the body of a helicopter, like the rounded body of a helicopter with the wings of a plane and the propellers of a drone. It looks fabulous. It looks so <laughs> fascinating. And Sean, because of the, the future looking prospect on this, even though the range is low and the charging time is high, I'm declaring useful. Oh, wow. I'm so happy right now. Take that, Mark, Mr. <laughs> Apollo. <Yeah. laughs> but uh, where do you land? Are you useful or useless? I think it's going to be incredibly useful. I just don't know when. Yeah, maybe we're not there yet. In my lifetime, who knows? <laughs> optimism. We're going for useful optimism on that one. <laughs> yes. All right, Sean, let's go for, uh, from, from the skies to something a little bit more around the house. Uh, companies were showing off robot butlers, essentially butlers that utilize artificial intelligence around the house. So LG brought up one. Samsung brought up another. What, 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 are, like, what are we looking at here with these robot butlers? Because I feel like we've had the, the, the vacuums, the self-driving vacuums for a while but what are these robot butlers going to do for me it's interesting you bring up the smart vacuums because there seems to be two camps on this either people absolutely love them or absolutely hate them oh i took mine back it was terrible it just beeped at me a lot um <laughs> I, I love them by the way um and again this kind of goes back to the flying cars dream um you know a robot butler has been promised for the longest time and it, it's interesting in samsung's uh, robot butler called Bawley um, because it resembles a basketball or a bowling ball. Um, it's quite cute. Um, what was I saying with this? <laughs> oh, uh, like like like, pur like purpose and function uh, compared oh, to the, the vacuums, purpose. the smart vacuums. Uh, yes, yes, yes. So they, they've been promised for a long time and it sounds great, but I'm not entirely sure how close we are. We're closer than we've ever been, but that doesn't say a lot. So currently... The LG one, I believe, is called the AI Agent, and the Samsung one, which is called Bawley. Um, the, the way I look at them is that they are basically your smart speaker, but able to follow you around everywhere. Oh, I don't like now, that. Now, that's exactly my point. You either love that idea or you absolutely <laughs> hate that idea. I love it. I think that's a fantastic thing. Now, they can all pretty much do the same thing. So they follow you around. They can control your smart home. They can monitor the environment, so uh, temperature and decide when to turn the heating on. They can monitor when lights are on and maybe you're out and it can turn it off or turn off your devices. You know, all the general stuff that you can do with a smart speaker anyway. Yeah, but it's, yeah. It, it's, the thing with these is the new AI. Of course, everything has AI. Of course, it has to. It, it has to. Of course, it because does. because it's there's because there's been no AI in any of our technology for the last twenty years. This is a brand new <laughs> notion that only started with ChatGPT in December of 2022. <laughs> But I, I think you're being a little bit sarcastic. I know, I, know, there, I, know. I don't like it. But the difference being, and this this is why ChatGPT has been so successful, or one of the reasons, is the way that it can talk back to you and the way you can talk to it. That natural conversation style. That the first time we've had that is because of the, the this level of AI from ChatGPT. So being able to talk to your robot butler and it talked back to you in a natural way is key for having that connection. And it does make a difference. So these are the latest evolution, the latest level 
of smart butlers and because of AI, they do seem to be more useful. But for every video that you watch of these, every demo that you see of these, it's all very much, okay, yes, it can make a video call, for example, for you. And in the case of the Samsung, it can project it on the ceiling, Ooh. on the floor, on the wall, and things like that. And it, yes, it, it seems to me that it's useful for a certain type of person, maybe someone who's really living 100% tech life, you know, and got everything like that. For everyone else, you know, when my dog's being sick in the <laughs> kitchen or whatever else... I'm not sure if it's quite there yet. But again, like the flying car, I wanted to check in on this because I'm really excited by this sort of technology, um, but others may not be. I don't think we're there yet. These are promised to be on sale, at least in the case of the Samsung Bally, promised to be on sale in 2024, yet they have no price or firm release date. So take that with yeah. uh well as you said a bit of a meh that's we'll see. that's one of the things about ces yeah we're showing you this cool stuff uh mark your calendars in 2031 uh sean <laughs> I'm, I, I'm just i just for the sake of playing the game and the lens that i've applied here Lay on be, me. because so much of this can already be done with smart speakers i'm declaring these robot butlers useless they are oh, getting they're I'm getting wounded. the useless and and because of that I have to say goodbye to you. I know you want to talk about some laptops. I promise what? you, keep keep these laptops top of mind. Next time you and I chat, we'll get to them. I promise. I promise. I promise. But Sean, for now, I drew. I just, <laughs> That's the whole win or a lose. I don't yeah. know where I am. Yeah. Hey, you shot fifty percent. You, you shot fifty percent in baseball. That's a great number. Uh, Sean, thanks, boss. Have a great day. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. That's Sean Priest. He's one of the hosts of Double Tap. You can find that show daily at noon Eastern time on AMI-audio. I love talking to Sean. Coming up next, the city of Calgary has a program that converts downtown offices into apartments. Cheryl McMullen explores some of the incentives and guidelines for the program. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The city of Calgary is transforming their downtown core. The city has a program that's doing office conversion into residential units, hotels, schools, and performing arts centers. The program is the cornerstone of the city's downtown strategy. Cheryl McMullen manages the program. Cheryl is the manager of investment and marketing for the city of Calgary's downtown strategy team. Hey, Cheryl, great to chat with you this morning. Thank you for waking up early, and I hope it's not too cold out there right now. No, I did a very quick drive into downtown, and thank you for the opportunity to be here. Uh, Cheryl, I want to go back in time. Where did this all begin? What was the kernel of this idea? So it's interesting. This idea really started in Calgary back in about 2014, 2015, when the oil and gas sector really started to change. Uh, there was a lot of consolidation. Companies were leaving Calgary. The result of all of that was a lot of vacant space started to build in our downtown core because when the oil and gas companies left, there was a ripple effect through all of the supporting industries as well. Things like law offices, accounting firms, engineering firms. So our vacancy rate was starting to continually climb. When we looked at what was happening at the time, there was also a lot of new buildings coming online. So that was a forecast that there was going to be even more vacancy coming in the future. So we started to look at what could we do with those buildings 
fast forward to about 2018, 2019, the vacancy rate was north of 25%, which is in today's terms, not that, not as bad as it is now, but we really started to look at, okay, what can we do with these buildings? Given climate concerns and things like that, it doesn't make sense to demo them. We couldn't have these buildings remain vacant for an extended period of time. So that's where the whole notion of converting to office space to residential really took hold and we started to explore that much more deeply. Um, and then that kind of moved forward through the pandemic where vacancies, as you've seen, became much worse. And in 2021, that's when we actually launched our program. I, I'm going to tip my hand editorial here, uh, editorially here. I've been talking about this idea on air for about four years, and I was delighted when I saw that you and your colleagues were working so hard on this. But it's not simply about outcomes. Process is so important here. So what are some of the guidelines that office building owners and developers have to adhere to to be, take part in the program? So one of the key things that... Um is the main criteria. So you need to be in the greater downtown area. The city of Calgary has done a lot of work to look at putting together our greater downtown plan, which looks at a revitalization plan for all of downtown. So that basically goes north from the river out to the East Village area on the east side, downtown west on the west, not including the West Village, and all the way down south through the Beltline. So you need to be located in that area. It must be an office building. Currently, we're giving priority to the downtown core, so that's everything north of the tracks, uh, not including the bookends of uh, East Village. Um, and then you also need to own the building, have a purchase and sale agreement in place for the building, and you have to have a strong team that has the ability to execute. I understand the incentive in general for any business owner to want to fill these vacancy rates, but what kind of incentives are in place to get people to actually go through the work and go through the process here? So this really is an incentive program. And what we were aiming to do is to, when we looked at all the analysis, we wanted developers to actually be able to move quickly to convert these buildings from the vacant office space into residential. So we worked really closely with Calgary Economic Development and the Real Estate Sector Advisory Committee, which was comprised of a lot of development expertise throughout Calgary. Uh, it could be from single family, office buildings, residential properties. We had a group come together and say, how much would it require to actually, if you have a building owner kind of on the fence about what do I do with this building? What do I, how do I take that next step? How much should we offer an incentive to basically defray some of the costs and risks around converting from office to residential, what's going to make a difference? And that's where we landed on the $75 a square foot number, which became the basis of our program. Now, this $75 a square foot was originally designed to cover about 30% of the construction costs associated with these office conversions. And we, of course, want to minimize risk to the city, so we don't provide that money up front. You need to go through your entire development process and actually get occupancy for us to pay that money out to you. Mm. I, I know some of these projects are coming into fruition and are, are going to start housing people very shortly. I watched a, a CTV news story about this, and some of the units look absolutely gorgeous and beautiful. And I, I know it wasn't you in there with a hammer yourself doing that, but I think that's also a really important part of this. It's not just about building housing. It's about building great housing. Oh, it is. It absolutely is. So the project that you're talking about is the cornerstone. So when you, it's uh, kind of almost a little play on words there, <laughs> maybe intentional. So cornerstone is going to be the first project. You can see it there in the early days of construction. Um, the cornerstone 
that's going to be opening mid-February, likely for occupancy. That one, the developer, Astor Group, uh, led by Maxim Olszewski, his goal was to create attainable luxury. So that's what you saw in those units. And funny anecdotal story, I was doing a panel um, back in the fall at the Real Estate Forum, and Max was on the panel, so was I. Uh, there was a number of others, and we were talking about office conversions and reinvigorating downtown. And when we put together a slide deck, I'd asked him if he had some uh, renderings of the units. So these slides are going by, and then uh, afterwards, we went on a tour of the building, and I didn't realize the units were done. They weren't renderings. They were actually photos wow. of the units. So it was like, oh, okay. So these, his renderings ended up being reality in what they were able to build, and they did a fantastic job of making those units um, something that I would be happy to live in. Supply in the market naturally yes. is going to lend itself to affordability, but how is this part of a maybe a broader afford, or how could this be part of a broader affordable uh, housing strategy? So right now, that's a great question, and it's a top of mind issue for a lot of people. Well, most people across the city, especially for us here at the city of Calgary, affordable housing is a concern, and there's a need for housing all across the housing spectrum. The, all of the projects in our program are rental units, and most are being offered at market. What we're seeing as some of the marketing strategies are being developed for these projects, they could potentially be a step down from new build pricing, so just a little bit of a discount to market from normal new builds in the downtown. But what we've also been able to achieve through our program is because of the rapid increase in interest rates over the last couple of years, a lot of our program applicants, the developers, are trying to access Canada, uh, CMHC financing through either an MLI select program or residential construction financing initiative program. And both of those programs, in order to be eligible to get a reduced rate of borrowing, you need to either offer affordable housing units, and that's defined as a discount to market, so about 20% below market rates. You have to support climate goals or offer accessible units. So what we found is almost all of our applicants are accessing that CMHC, so we're being able to achieve a whole bunch of units that are below market, and it's locked in for as long as they have that CMHC financing in place. Cheryl, I'll make this confession to you. I might live in Toronto, but I'm not a Torontonian. I grew up elsewhere, <laughs> but I'm going to put a little bit of a Toronto lens on this question, because what you're doing here is such a great idea and because other cities have very similar situations, I believe the report out of Toronto last week said about 27% vacancy in the office spaces in downtown cores. Have other cities reached out to you to, to get a gander, an idea of your plan? Absolutely. We talk pretty much weekly now to Canadian cities and also a lot of U.S. cities. It's interesting. We've had a number of conversations with Toronto. Uh, they've got, they're at the crux of part of the housing crisis as well, is when you look at newcomers coming into Canada, a lot of them come to Toronto first and then disperse elsewhere. We're also getting a lot of new immigrants and also interprovincial migration into Calgary. Toronto's case is a little bit unique. It's interesting because if you take current office space. And I think this is some of the things that the Toronto City Council is currently trying to work on. If you take current office space and convert it to a new use, you have to replace that office space. Mm. It's called mm. replacement of employment space. So the City Council is currently looking at, and I believe it's Councillor Brad Bradford, who's looking at how to make some changes to the planning requirements so that older office buildings can actually be repurposed 
to provide residential. Some of them just are not uh, conducive to being an office building any longer. But how do you get rid of that automatic requirement for that developer to replace office space? There's new other space being planned. So tricky little uh, wrinkle yeah. that they have in Toronto. The, the housing crisis is going to require a lot of creativity, and I think you and your colleagues are definitely onto something here. Cheryl, on the way out the door, I'll tell you this. I visited Calgary for work earlier this year, spent the weekend with some friends, blown away by the beauty of your downtown core. You and your colleagues are doing an exceptional job. Well, thank you so much, Dave. I really appreciate it. <laughs> That's me uh, kissing up to the guests. Cheryl, thank you for this. <laughs> Hope you're staying warm out there. Definitely. Thank you for the opportunity. Have a great day. That's Cheryl McMullen. Cheryl is the manager of investments and marketing for the city of Calgary's downtown strategy team. Big thank you to uh, Cheryl for stopping by. Coming up after the break, you know the pulse on AMI-audio. That's a show that I used to host. Joey DeGupta holds the reins of that show now. The show's back from... Uh, you know, a little time off over the holidays. So Juita's going to stop by and tell you about a couple of the episodes that are on the front burners, the back burners, and everywhere else on the stove in between. Maybe even the warming drawer where you store your frying pans. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Pulse on AMI-audio is back up and running after the holidays. One of the most recent interviews that Joita Gupta did was around some of the mm, interesting strains of wellness culture. I'm choosing the word interesting carefully there. I may get a little more editorial in a moment. Joita interviewed Jacqueline Alness to discuss her book, the Fruit Cure. The episode is available as a podcast and on YouTube. And Joita's here. Typically you get Joita on a Friday for the news panel, but now you get a dose of Joita on a Monday. Hello, Joita. Hello, Dave. Double trouble, as double, they say. <laughs> double trouble. But Joita, there's, sometimes there's these moments, because I read a promo for your show every week, and some weeks I'm like, that is killer stuff. And this one that you picked out for last weekend looked like killer stuff. Let's start with the book itself before we get into the interview. What are some of the relevant details around the book that made you think, goodness gracious, I need to bring this person on for a 25-minute interview? Yes, so I stumbled on the book quite by accident. And as soon as I read the title about the fruit cure, I was hooked because I couldn't figure out what on earth was going on. Now, Jacqueline Elness is a runner, a writer, and she's a professor as well. Uh, and she wrote this book because of what happened to her uh, as an undergraduate student. She started university as a Division I athlete and was under a lot of pressure, but started to experience all these neurological symptoms that no matter what she or her coach or the doctor with the team tried to do, no one could really get to the bottom of her symptoms. Like she was fainting, she was, uh, you know, she was falling on the track and people couldn't figure out what was wrong. And so, you know, as is the case for many people with disabilities, the, the, the journey begins. You go from one specialist to another and you're, you're playing ping pong from one doctor's office to another and not really getting a satisfactory answer, even as she's getting sicker and sicker. Mm. And so when 
it got to the point where she was no longer a runner. She was no longer part of the team. And she was she dropped from a full course load to a part-time course load. And she's basically at home all the time. And she's at home all the time. And she's doing what all of us do, at least. Well, okay, I, maybe I'm generalizing. She's doing what I do. The moment I have a sniffle, I am jumping on Google and I'm saying, is this just a cold? Is this COVID? Is this something else? Right, right. Uh, and, and jumping down this rabbit hole. And she jumps down this rabbit hole and she comes across this website, which, uh, and there's a clip that, you know, she, that kind of describes the, her mental state at the time, but she says it really changed her life. Yeah, Judy, you mentioned the clip. Let, let's play the clip and then we'll jump back into this conversation because I think there's a lot of stuff to explore here and unpack. So let's hear Jacqueline's observation on her effort to find relief from medical problems. During those long days spent alone in my room, my desk became an altar, Google a god I prayed to. Am I epileptic? I want to walk again. Am I sick? I am afraid. And the internet responded with quizzes to tell me whether or not I had temporal lobe epilepsy, infographics with symptoms of a stroke, advice on whether to exercise with seizures. I took every test to see whether or not I could determine what was wrong with me. I read stories of people who had suddenly fallen ill. I tried to find myself in a variety of WebMD descriptors that became a funhouse mirror for my own symptoms. When I had exhausted all that, I clicked on a website that would change everything. So, Joita, that's some of the context here, some of the background. But where does lowly old fruit come into this? Yes, yeah, so the website that she finds is 30 bananas a day. It no longer exists. But as the title suggests, the website basically is an extreme diet where you live off of, guess what, 30 bananas a day. Oh, man. <laughs> and there are people who are evangelizing about this miracle because it has cured everything from, you know, common aches and pains, suddenly, you know, you're in the best shape of your life, You all these mysterious symptoms have vanished and there's this message board um where people are sharing their personal stories and one of the people who shares a personal story is another division one athlete and that and jackie thinks oh my god you know it's this this person is me they've had they've gone through what i've gone through now she never actually becomes a fruitarian she's never really fully 100 committed to the diet but the book explores her journey with this diet but what it does which i found was really fascinating is you know a lot of memoirs when you read them are straight up autobiography you know it's an autobiography you know i, mm -hmm, I did this mm -hmm. this was my life but one of the cool things about this book is that she intersperses her personal narrative with a larger historical and sociological exploration of the origins of wellness culture and the history of things like vegetarianism and veganism and how some of these fad diets actually enter our consciousness. And we may think, I mean, I certainly thought before I read the book, that this was something that had sprung up with the advent of social media because suddenly everybody could publish a web page and you were putting all your ideas on the internet for other people to pick up mm. on. But it turns out there's this whole movement that goes back to the 18th and 19th century where people are promoting all these alternate medicine and 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 health cures and all of these ideas become particularly salient when we think about what Jacqueline Alness and I suspect other people 
go through with mysterious symptoms that they're not being able to find a resolution. So it's partly a memoir and a reflection on wellness, but it's also talking about the failings of the medical system. And I think, you know, I've done episodes on The Pulse about this one before. Yeah, you sure uh, have. Medical, some, some really, some really great episodes. Some That was a fantastic episode. I don't toot my own horn, but, you know, there was a fantastic episode I did, not this December, but the December before, where there's some, you know, conversations about how people with disabilities are consistently let down by the medical system. So the book is also getting into the fact that the medical system uh, is not providing answers, but there's also ableism. People are, you know, just not taking the symptoms that she's coming up with seriously. They're asking her if it's all in her head. Uh, she's, there are delays, you know, uh, she said, I, am I waiting to get into an epilepsy clinic and I didn't have room? I mean, we talk about delays in the healthcare system oh on the gosh. news channel yeah, all, <laughs> like, the all the time. All the time. So, so the book was really... Fantastic. Uh, I um, enjoyed the interview because Jack uh, Jacqueline is a, a, a great talker, which is obviously a good thing. But is someone who can really reflect on her journey uh, with sensitivity to the fact that people are really struggling uh, to find answers to their own health uh, and you know problems and their own questions around wellness. And of course, you know, there's so many other strands that I. You know, I did the interview. The way we do the pulse is we record them like a couple of weeks in advance. Like I come in on a Sunday and I record like four or five episodes. And mm -hmm. so I did this one. I must have done this before the Christmas holidays. Uh, so I actually have to go back and listen to the episode too. But there's so many other ideas that people get that get tossed around in this book around what is wellness? Yeah. What does being yeah. healthy actually mean? Uh, what is the, you know, what is fitness? And this the reality that there are people who have picked up on these ideas and are peddling all these cures and diets and, and wellness fads and making a ton of money off of it. Oh, yeah. The yeah. The people who launched 30 bananas a day, uh, durian fruit and somebody else, like there were two of them, they made heaps and heaps of money out of uh, off of it i mean of course they also had a personal narrative that they were selling this you know hippie couple in australia who were living their best life and eating 30 bananas a day and of course then their personal narrative falls apart because suddenly it turns out that they're not just eating 30 bananas a day but they're only eating raw till four o'clock in the afternoon and then they're eating cooked food so hang on a second what's going on there and their relationship because they were a couple their relationship implodes and that becomes social media sensation so there's a lot of things happening to this health there's wellness there's a little bit of gossip because who doesn't like to yeah, hear yeah of course of course yeah. no it's like, uh, like this is the kind of stuff that's really awesome Juita, because you're taking this this research of an idea right like the, there's sort of a core jumping off point that leads into a large tree of branches of ideas yes. and that's what makes for a great long-form interview that's what i used to love yes. about hosting the pulse because you weren't yes. sort of trying to hit a talking point or two you were like you were really getting to go somewhere so this is one where i'll just say we, we've, we've got to put a pin on it Juita, because i want to give you at least a minute for this uh, next topic folks have to go back download the podcast favorite podcast platform punch in the pulse on ami audio find it on youtube my gosh Go check this out. It's incredible. Joita, I do want to take just a second here to talk about a mini-series you did on accessible fashion. Um, before I give you the chance to set up here, I want to play a clip that you provided from your interview with Alexa, Alexa Jovanovich. I'm so bad. Jovanovich. Alexa Jovanovich <laughs> of iDesign. Like I said, fashion was something I always loved, but in many ways, fashion can be frivolous. But now working specifically with Braille beadwork and having the privilege to work with such incredible women from the blind and visually impaired community, 
the power of fashion and the power of what we're creating is so much more than just clothing. It's creating opportunities and conversations and awareness. And it's really opened my mind. Joey, I've got to hold you to about 90 seconds on this one. I, I, yes. We've got a hard out at 1058, and if I blow by that, they fire me. I've straight, I straight up lose <laughs> the job. Why did you want to do a series, a, a full series on accessible fashion? Yes, so Alexa Yovanovitch, the creator of iDesign, is the third of three guests you'll be hearing from in the Accessible Fashion mini-series, which kicks off this Saturday, and it'll take you right to the beginning of February. You'll drop one episode a week. And there are many compelling questions that can be asked about accessible fashion, the who, what, when, where, and why. But the question I really wanted to tease out is the how. Mm. So I really wanted to talk to some of these creators and get into their heads and into their brains about their creative process and ask questions such as, how did you convince people to back you up when you were the only person talking about accessible fashion? I mean, it wasn't even a word uh, or much less a concept. How do you talk to your suppliers? How do you engage with the disability community? How do you incorporate feedback? How do you know what works and doesn't work? What's your collaborative process like? And you hear from three fantastic women, uh, Izzy Camilleri from Is Adaptive, Wendy Wong from June Adaptive, uh, which are both major clothing brands, and of course, Alexa Yovanovitch, who I think has actually been on uh, this station a number of times promoting eye design. Mm -hmm. And eye design is, of course, really cool because it's the Braille clothing where they individually sew on beads to, to have Braille writing on the clothes. Each of these women, in their own way, have a love of fashion, uh, but also a love of the community. And by community, I don't just mean the broader community, but community in the sense that everybody said, my origin story, the reason I got into accessible fashion is because I had a family member or a friend or somebody in my community who needed help. And that's where it really becomes a jumping off point where they start to say, I really want to get into accessible fashion to make a change to the community. And Alexa Yovanovitch does a really great job of collaborating with people with visual impairments to help them design clothing that is ref that reflects their interests and, and needs and wants. They're all really fantastic interviews. I couldn't do them justice because one of the nice things about this accessible fashion miniseries is it, kind of, it really leans into the YouTube format. So we also have a number of clothes and other things that you can check out if you uh, watch on YouTube. Juita, thank you for this. Have a lovely day. Thank you very much. That is Juita Gupta, the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. You know where to find it. You go to your favorite podcasting platform, you punch in The Pulse on AMI-audio, just like you punch in now with Dave Brown. And then you rate, subscribe, you review, you share with your friends. Come on, sharing is caring. Give the people what they want. Don't forget Kelly and Ramya coming your way, 2 p.m. Eastern time on ami They've got a segment all about snow removal programs for people with disabilities in the Ottawa area. I get the impression there's a lot of folks who would appreciate that one right now. Until tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. 
Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.